Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome, one and all, to the Storybox podcast, the place to be if you are a lover of stories. My name is Jay Phantom, former real estate agent, now living my purpose, sharing amazing stories from people all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Storybox Podcast. I'm thrilled that you have returned. Excellent. So, my friends, today I have a very special guest for you. A lot of you would know my next guest, and many of you might have been helped by her work. Uh, my next guest is none other than Sarah Wilson, the former journalist and TV presenter, now author and activist. She wrote the New York Times bestseller, I Quit Sugar. First, we make the beast beautiful, which Mark Manson described as the best book on living with anxiety that he's ever read. She's the author of 11 other cookbooks that have sold in 52 countries worldwide. She previously was the editor of Cosmopolitan Australia, host of MasterChef Australia, and founder of the largest wellness website in Australia, iQuitSugar.com. In May of 2018, Sarah closed the business and gave all her money to charity. And that's what you're going to hear a lot about in this episode is Sarah's just charity and kindness. And that's the kind of human being that she is. She's generally an authentic human being. She now builds and enables charity projects that engage humans with each other and campaigns on mental health and climate issues, which we also talk about on this episode of the podcast. Sarah ranks as one of the top 200 most influential authors in the world and has a combined digital audience of 2.5 million. Sarah lives a very minimalist lifestyle. She rides a hand-built bike and is known for traveling the world for eight years with one bag. Sarah's latest book, The One Wild and Precious Life, is a soul's journey through the complexities of climate change, coronavirus, racial inequalities, and our disconnection from what matters back to life. Sarah hikes around the world, meeting wild voices and experts who provide hopeful wisdoms and vibrant solutions to, to arrive at what she feels is the true path through the despair to better our world. It's uh, already out, this one wild, precious life. You can buy it wherever you get your books from. Uh, and I know you guys are going to love this episode because it is different. It really is different. I asked Sarah some fascinating in-depth insights into why she decided to write uh, this one wild, precious life, what it really means to her, and all these other interesting, thought-provoking questions. And I know you guys are going to get a lot of insights into Sarah's mindset and her life uh, as a whole. 
So with that being said, my friends, I need you to do me a huge favor. If you do get something from this, share it around first and foremost and help build this community. Um, if someone you know is struggling that could benefit from hearing Sarah's wisdom, then please send them the link to this, this episode. Um, I know they're going to feel inspired and educated in many ways from Sarah's story. Uh, and also leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts if you can. It takes 30 seconds. I know your time is valuable, but it goes a long way, like I keep saying, in building this incredible audience. And um, I'm extremely grateful for you all that keep coming back every single week. Uh, those that come back three times a week, um, even more grateful. So with that being said, my friends, let's dive into the story box and hear the wonderful, kind, generous, charitable Sarah Wilson's story. Oh, thank you, Jared. That was a very kind intro. (laughs) Thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to appear on on my podcast. And I hope I get to do some justice with everything that you, everything I just mentioned in in your bio, which is pretty incredible. Uh, Before we dive into all that stuff, I have one question that I love starting off with, uh, which is what does success look like to you? Oh, gosh. I guess I would have to say categorically it's where my, what I do each day um, aligns with my values. So whenever I am doing something that doesn't align with my values, I don't last there for very long. Um, I'll itch. I'll itch and I'll cringe and everything will feel out of kilter. And um, as I've got older and my career has progressed, I've got much better at listening to that itch. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, success would be when, and I suppose it's also um, for me as I I get older, I think it's also about um, being able to be of service. So it's not so much about personal achievement or financial remuneration um, none of that stuff matters to me. It never has. Um, I've, I've lived in the same manner for all of my life, all of my adult life. I, I don't own a car. I don't buy anything new. Um, I cook using food scraps. And I did that when I was at the editor of Cosmo. I did it when I was hosting TV shows. So, um, so yeah, I guess all along um, it's been about values and being of service. And you know, I had sort of some dark times uh, out there in the wilderness, you know, working for commercial media. But it was all about accumulating skills and everything, and getting to the point where I am today, where I do get to do stuff that I um, I think has has impact in terms of helping humanity without sounding too Pollyanna-ish or like I've got a Messiah complex. <laughs> no, I honestly, I love that. I love the being of service part and how you've lived pretty much the way you live now for quite some time and it hasn't really changed that much. Like we all hold our values quite close to our hearts and I think when we go against it, you're right, we, we, we don't feel aligned at all and that alignment hurts. Uh, so we always trying to get back to that alignment um, that we need to be in. I'm curious though, when did you realize that being in alignment with your values and everything was actually your version of success? Was it like this uh, catalyst moment somewhere in your life or was there like this gradual period that you sort of started realizing it over time? 
Well, I learned the hard way, which is how I've learned most things in my life. Um, and I think um, there was probably a turning point, which I chronicle in uh, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which talks about my anxiety. Um, and I was diagnosed with a whole range of things and I've also got quite a full-on autoimmune disease, all of which I do see as, I guess, my own internal compass's way of reminding me when I'm on the wrong track. So I know I've got very sick when I haven't been aligned with my values. Mm-hmm. And as an indicator, it was during my the end of my tenure as editor of Cosmo that I developed um, Hashimoto's and that really ground me to a halt. So I suppose in the, yeah, in my mid-30s, I had a big, big slap down. I ignored the subtle signs and then the signs got louder and eventually I got slammed and I couldn't walk or work for almost a year. And that was probably, that was very much a turning point. I talk about it also in um, this one, Wild and Precious Life, that um, I, I hit rock bottom, I lost everything and I, I was very close to, to suicide and I, when I decided to not kill myself but, and I chose actively to live, I chose to live in a very particular way and the words in my head at the time were I will never get caught up again. And what I mean by that is I'll never get caught up in a system of values that's all about more, more, more and um you know, being on a conveyor belt or, you know, that runs according to other people's ideas of value. So, um, yeah, I suppose that was when I made a real commitment to myself. Um, Previously, I'd gravitated to good stuff, but then also got lured by, you know, sort of fame, fortune, glamour, you know, um, lots of pink sequins and things like that along the way, I got distracted, you know, and eventually my system told me it wasn't right. And then I suppose since my mid-30s, I'm now in my late 40s, I, I've had to refine it, you know, and it's still an act of refinement because I still live in the world with the same value systems that have always existed. And, it, you know, to, to do what I do requires stepping aside from the system constantly. Yeah. So there was that moment in my mid thirties. Yeah. That, that is, um, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I'm, what I want to ask you is the anxiety part. Um, how did you, what caused the anxiety and what are some strategies that you implement day to day to sort of help cope with your, your anxiety or do you still struggle with it today? Yeah, I think it's going to be with me for the rest of my life. It's like my little friend that hangs out with me and and I've got to look after her, you know. Um, I I describe it in First We Make the Beast Beautiful as my superpower in many ways because my anxiety rears its head when I am off track and when I'm not living in congruence. So um, where did it start? Um, Look, I think I was born with it to a certain extent. It was certainly um, a lot of... Uh, nature going on there. My grandmothers both had bipolar and I was eventually diagnosed with bipolar when I was 21. But prior to that, I was diagnosed with childhood anxiety at 13. Uh, Nobody really knew what that meant at the time. Um, But uh, then at sort of 18, I developed fairly severe obsessive compulsive disorder. And in fact, I had it beforehand, but I was diagnosed at at 18. Um, And then it moved into bipolar. So um, 
Yeah, I think that it's a combination of hereditary factors, but I also think that there's also a sort of a biological quirk um, that occurs in about 1.2 to 1.4% of the population. And that's how many people in any given population in anywhere in the world at any point in history um, who have OCD, bipolar, and these other kinds of extreme anxiety disorders um, and, you know, my exploration in First We Make the Beast Beautiful is to show that these quirks exist in the sort of the human experience to ensure there's a number of us that have very high standards of hygiene, cleanliness, vigilance, creativity, bravery, um, et cetera, et cetera, which is why so many of the world's and history's poets, scientists, uh, crisis leaders were bipolar or had OCD, you know. So, um, you know, what came first, the evolutionary quirk, uh, genetic factors or um, other environmental factors that occurred uh, in mice of teens? Um, I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know. I just want to go straight to the modulation of it and the thriving with it, not just living with it. I like how you mentioned the thriving with it because I can relate to parts of your story there. So I, yeah. I, I suffered a massive panic attack in year 11 where an ambulance mm-hmm. called to my school. They had to check me over, make sure that I wasn't actually having a heart attack. Um, yeah. I also suffered with depression, anxiety, stress, and it would every single time that I had high amounts of stress, I would get sick and it always affect my gut. Um, yeah. I noticed that whenever I thought these, like the worst possible uh, scenarios, these, these thoughts would go in my brain, my stomach would just get super, like it would almost collapse. Um, mm-hmm. I never felt great. So I, I completely understand what you mean by some of the world's best people out there, like um, Albert Einstein, they all had these, these little quirks. but they mm-hmm. are- And they, also, they often had gut issues. So that's the other yeah, Nietzsche, um, Van Gogh, Einstein, Virginia Woolf, they all had gut issues as well as bipolar, as well as an ability to create great stuff. Yes. As well as a lot of pain. <laughs> Funny so, enough, it ended up turning for me, I ended up getting IBS and SIBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people that don't know what SIBO is, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where I just crave sugar. <laughs> um, and I kind of did that to myself in a way. Um, I was addicted. I had these addictive personality uh, traits about me. So I got addicted to health and fitness and starving myself of the right nutrients because I yeah. thought I looked good and I thought I'd, you know, if I was skinny, you know, I'd be okay. Um, and I'm, I'm always curious about, you wrote this book called I Quit Sugar. And funny enough, my auntie was the one that gave it to my mum, who then my mum went <laughs> on a diet. And that's how I, this was years ago now. Yeah. When I first picked up the book, I'm like, this is an incredible book. We both went on the diet and the diet actually helped us both. Um, and I, I was thinking when I got the book, I'm like, never in my wildest dreams would I ever be able to speak to Sarah Wilson, the author of this amazing book. And yet here I am. <laughs> so my, my question to you would be, uh, Sarah, is why, what was the process like for you in actually writing I Quit Sugar? And then my other question would be Hashimoto's disease and gut health, gut issues, that sort of thing. How do you manage that today? Oh, okay. Um, so 
the I Quit Sugar thing started shortly after that sort of collapse in my mid-30s. Um, it was slightly interrupted by my stint as the host of the first series of MasterChef. But then I eventually got, well, I eventually collapsed even more in a heap and took myself off to the hinterland of Byron Bay and lived in an army shed out there. And, and um, I needed to get my health back on track. I, I sort of isolated myself. I lost everything. I was a bit of a mess. And so I experimented with all these different techniques for wellness and it was pretty early in those wellness years um there weren't too many influences smoothie influences around um this is like 2011 no 2010 and um I wrote a column for Sunday Life magazine once a week and that's what you know kept me going financially and it went this week I dot 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 and it'd be meditate with the Dalai Lama you know blah 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 one week I was out of a topic I was like I knew I had to quit sugar uh, my adrenals were all over the place, inflammation, like yourself, gut issues that basically fed an addiction um, to sugar and various other substances, most of which are deemed, you know, normal. Mm -hmm. And um, but I knew, I, I, I just knew, I knew it was the missing piece. I knew it was it was pretty more significant than I than I really wanted to admit. So. I was short of a topic, so I decided to quit sugar and I gave it a go and I kept going. I went down this rabbit hole of research and this was pre-social media, but then Twitter arrived shortly thereafter and so I started tweeting and blogging about it and it just got more and more involved and then I started attending obesity conferences and um, talking with diabetes researchers and, car, you know, um, cardiac researchers and um, it developed, it took me two years to develop um, what I felt was a program that was scientifically based to get people off sugar. So that's, mm -hmm. it literally evolved. Um, it turned into an ebook, which I created. It became an Amazon bestseller by accident. I mean, honestly, it was a cut and paste job. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and the most I've ever spent on that whole enterprise was $100 for an online course on how to write your first ebook. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of made that money back fairly quickly. And then it became a print book and it, and so on and so forth. Um, but the interesting thing to the second part of your question, where does autoimmune and my bipolar and gut problems, sleep problems, the whole, excuse my language, but clusterfuck yep. of stuff come into play? Well, you could get overwhelmed and go, oh, my God, where do I start unpacking all of this? How do I start living with it, managing it, thriving with it? Well, the answer is kind of the same for all of it. You know, it's like this sort of knotted ball of wool and it all starts to loosen up when you start doing some of these practices. So the practices that I practice today, and it is a practice because I certainly haven't perfected them, and it's the ongoing tussle with them that actually makes me get more resilient and it's the resilience that ends up mm. um, being of maximum benefit. So... Um, the stuff that I do today, which basically helps with all of the ailments that I mentioned, um, obviously I keep min sugar to an absolute minimum within the sort of six teaspoons a day range, which once you've quit sugar, your body knows how to modulate to that effect. It takes the form of dark chocolate, 90% dark chocolate mostly, which is, you know, virtually, you know, I have three squares a day and that's a less than a teaspoon um, of sugar. Um, I'll have a bit of sugar in a birthday cake every now and then. I don't, I'm not stringent um, because that will actually cause bigger problems, but my body knows how much it can handle. So sugar, I meditate. Um, 
once or twice a day. I try to do twice. It's a Vedic style with yep. a mantra. That's what happens to work for me. Um, and um, I get outdoors. So I exercise every morning. It's non-negotiable. I just do it. I love it. My body craves it. I don't do it to lose weight. I do it to get oxygen pumping through my system so that my, and I find that my gut problems, um, you know, alleviate. I find that everything falls into place. And for me, it works to do it in the mornings. Um, and I get into nature. So the meditation, the exercise and the getting into nature can all be done in one whack. You know, if, if I go to the, for a hike or yeah. if I do an ocean swim, um, or even if I just run with bare feet in a park, you know, and I do a bit of sand running and stair running and that kind of thing, nothing too arduous. Um, but being in nature, and that's what I explore in this one wild and precious life, I explore the various studies that show how not only exercising but exercising in nature has this incredible effect on all kinds of things. And the studies have been done into bipolar, into gut health, into um, anxiety and so on. Um, so they all have a part to play and they all sort of domino backwards and forwards from each other. Now, the gut stuff is a lot to do with the mental health stuff because um, so most of the serotonin, 80 to 90% of the serotonin that we always talk about in terms of mental health is produced in the gut. Yeah. Um, and as you start to soften one aspect of this ball, knotted ball of wool, everything else starts to soften. So I, I do all of those practices. Um, I also what I call soul nerd. So this is something that I, a term I introduced in my latest book um, as a technique, and it really has affected um, me long-term. I read about other incredible people. When I say other incredible, I mean I read about other people who are incredible and have produced great things and have struggled with the same stuff that I have, mm. and I read about how they sort of, you know, modulated thrived with it so whether it's Nietzsche or you know Winston Churchill whoever it might be and um, the practice of reading some of these deep reads and often they write poetry and they write beautiful prose that I've got to be very present with um, that in itself is a practice and I sort of do it a couple of times a week I'll set aside time to read some of this deep reading stuff um, it, it's made a big difference. So I don't read self-help stuff with hacks and, you know, um, didactic fixes and stuff like that written by dudes from Silicon Valley, right? I don't do that stuff because I don't believe it. I feel it's way too didactic. It's, it's not gentle. It's not inspiring to me. What's inspiring to me is these people who have been able to then apply. I can feel their engagement with this better way of living in their writing, you know, um, it's, it, there's a beauty to it and it's in the pauses, it's in the imaginative uh, spaces between their words that I'm able to access the incredible spaciousness within myself, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Oh, no, you're completely right. I mean, everyone is, is unique in their own way. Everyone has mm. what works for them. And I can't believe that I relate to so much of all the things that you do on a daily basis that helps you because it helps me too, especially the exercise. Mm. I mean, I used to exercise to lose weight because I thought I was fat. Now I exercise for the sheer benefit of going out in nature, being present and getting my mind and it also helps my gut get moving. Feeling alive, feeling like you're in congruence with life. 100%. And if mm. you don't do it, you notice that you're out of whack, like there's something missing in your day. 
And I came up mm. with saying, Sarah, like if I could beat the sun uh, every single morning, no matter what comes my way during the day, I can beat that too because I'm setting myself up for positive reinforcement before the sun has even risen. Like how many people do you know get up at 4 a.m. in the morning to, to go about their day and get things done? I don't yeah. know too many people. So I don't. <laughs> I, um, however, um, I you know I do like being up relatively early. Four does push some boundaries there. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> I know people. People say that I'm I'm wild and I'm weird in that respect. But they they do say uh, they, they always ask me why do I do it, and I say because number one I feel more alive, and mm-hmm. I get up later. I feel like I'm missing out on something. Like I want to use my time wisely. And yeah. You know, I like how you, I like how you mentioned the the meditation thing because, like, when you go outside and exercise in nature, you almost like feel one with nature. I kind of feel like it's a bit woo woo, but even still, it's so true. Oh, it's it's not it's not well, it it's perceived as woo woo, but in fact, there's science now rolling in to back what we've intuitively known to be true, mm. and what the spiritualists have sort of said, you know, in their scriptures and I don't know their prayer cards and angel cards or whatever. But, um, I mean, this is one example that you might find interesting. Um, you know, this is um, our retinas are made up of fractals, which is patternings that repeat over and over again. Um, and um, so much of nature is made up of fractals. So whether it's a fern frond or um, tidal pools or whatever, you know, whatever it might, petals of a flower, when we identify the fractals through our eyes there's this congruence that happens we immediately are tapped into a sense of belonging there's this you know an awareness of um a a, a sort of settling in to what is meant to be um and or attunement which i think is a beautiful word to describe it so yeah that sense of belonging is a biological thing that happens in our eyes, you know, at one level. And then there's a whole heap of other levels to do, or, you know, science, uh, scientific studies that show the hormones that trees release can mm. actually bring us into attunement as well. They mm. resonate with the hormones in our own bodies. So um, it used to be woo-woo. Now um, it's pretty scientific. <laughs> it's scientific and it's being more accepted worldwide, I've found. And mm-hmm. when you actually go about living it yourself, you're more inclined to actually believe it. Um, I'm curious about you've you writ I quit sugar a while ago, having been in this space for a long period of time, having experimented along along the way over the years and written so many more books, would you go back or if you were to go back and rewrite I quit sugar, would you change much about it or keep it the same? No, I, I wouldn't. Um, I'm somebody who doesn't tend to regret things because I agonise over every decision. So by the time I actually make a decision, you know, I've pretty much turned over every stone, um, dealt with contingencies. Um, so, no, I wouldn't do it any differently. Um, there are a couple of adjustments I made along the way. Um, you know, there was sort of a refinement I did at one point once um, additional science came out that showed that even eating non-fructose sugars, whether it's glucose or maltose, um, can actually continue a sugar addiction because your body gets the sweet taste from these substances and will go hunting down um, looking for the other half of the reward um, system, which is the actual 
sugar substance, the fructose itself. So, um, you know, somebody might have a Diet Coke and then just want to go and eat a big sugary muffin straight after. So there was a little bit of refinement I did around that um, in terms of recommendations and in terms of using alternative sweeteners and actually committing to only allowing a certain amount per serve in any recipe. So all recipes were adjusted to allow for that. And it wasn't much of an adjustment because I'd already operated that way. And the thing is, is when you quit sugar, your taste buds shift. And so you don't need as much sweetness um, fructose or otherwise, um, to, to feel that satisfaction. Mm. So, um, yeah, but otherwise, no, I think, um, the aspects of it that I, I think, you know, the gentleness of it, the fact that you don't need to do a 21 day, um, quit program, if it's done more languidly over eight weeks with some ups and downs and some, you know, bad days, then that is the better way to, to do it. Um, you know, the book was called I Quit Sugar, Not You Must Quit Sugar. I always issue all of my books as gentle invitations and mm. all I do is I go first, I investigate the science, I pose some different kinds of questions, I come out the other side and I try to be as honest as possible with what happened and who it might benefit and basically just provide all of my information so that people can do it themselves if they want to. Mm. Um and, you know, no, so to answer, the short answer is no, I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> I like that answer. It's cool. Um, I, I feel like I could talk to you for ages, but I know our time is very limited. So a couple more questions for you. Um, this one, I like asking people just to see their response. Uh, what has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received from someone? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, that's a hard one. Um, let me see. I think, I think there's been advice that's been appropriate for me at every juncture of my life. I think the best advice, the worst advice is one that basically gives you the feeling that that is the right answer. Um, the best advice you can be given is to work out your own path at some point. And you've got to get sheer years on the planet to be able to do that. Um, Steve Jobs did a commencement address to Stanford some time back and he he had all these mistakes that he made and it looks ridiculous. He looked back at all the dots of his life and they didn't seem to join up. Mm. But he said he needed actual sheer years on the planet to see, ah, oh, no, actually there's a pattern. And all the supposed failures and stuff-ups and bits of bad advice he followed linked to the right things. So um, I don't think there's any such thing as bad advice. There's only... Um, a strict adherence to any kind of advice that will become bad advice, if that makes sense. Yeah, we can choose to take the advice or not. Like, Yeah. And, look, you know, I was lucky enough, like even messages like um, go low, um, eat low fat, you know, mm. that whole thing. I mean, I grew up in an era well before you were born, Jared, but, um, I, um, you know, where low fat was, you know, was the way to go. But I was very fortunate to grow up with a mother who didn't diet and who knew that, you know, full-fat milk and butter and things like that were the way to go. Um, and so I was never affected by those messages, thankfully. Yeah. Good. But that is some bad advice, is to eat low-fat. That is very, very bad advice. I love, I love fatty food. My peanut butter, I can eat a whole jar in a day. It's my weak point too. Oh. It's an absolute I, – I, I'm not allowed to have it in the house. I only eat it when I'm out and um, in equal measure with butter. It's – and, yes. and with salt, it's 
it is my weakness, but I don't apologize for it. I think it does good things for me. <laughs> 100%. I have to agree with you on that one. Um, Sarah, Sarah, you are an activist that uh, is very outspoken about a lot of issues in society, which I think is very admirable and admirable for you. Um, and people need to sort of look at that and appreciate what you're doing. Um, I'm curious about one of these things about, you know, climate change and the state of the world currently. What do you believe we need to do as human beings in order to better our world? Is that even possible with the state that it's in? Oh, it's absolutely possible. Um, however, it's going to require radical and almost magical um, collective will. So all, this, all the answers exist from a technological point of view in terms of climate solutions. What is and, and, and I think governments and industry are willing to shift. They're willing to do it, albeit leaving aside President Trump. Um, but most governments are willing to do it because it does make sense. What's required is radical collective will. Now, the great thing about human nature, firstly, action begets action. So you only have to do a small thing and then it just has a trickle on and ripple on and domino effect, right? So a lot of people get overwhelmed and think there's no point starting. There's no point, you know, taking my keep cup when nobody else does. Mm. But you'd be so surprised about how your one action will have a ripple on effect. And um, also you have no, often we don't have any idea of um, how being engaged and doing even a small thing can dial down the overwhelm and despair and anxiety that we're all feeling at the moment. So there's that. Um, but also if you think about any sporting game throughout history that we know about and goes down in history, um, they more often than not, entail like the last 30 seconds the losing team is down however many points and it looks hopeless right you know and somehow something magical and kamikaze like happens the team the losing team goes rogue you know people the fans are leaving the stadiums um everyone's kind of given up this is not going to go anywhere and out of nowhere this kind of wild energy comes about and the rules go out the window, or at least the tactics, the usual tactics, and the team throws themselves at the goal, the whatever it is, the, the home run, and will win. And it happens more often than it should, right, yeah. that it's down to the razor wire and then all of a sudden this losing team just comes through. We also see it in the mobilisation in, in wars. So America mobilised from a consumer economy into a wartime economy in three weeks, it took on rationed eating. The highest tax rate was 94%. Um, factories shut down and became factories for uh, guns and, and tanks and that kind of thing and for making food parcels. And that happened in three weeks. Nobody could have predicted it. Um, same with mothers. You'll have a 50-kilo mum who can lift a car off her toddler if it's run, been run over, those kinds of things happen when we love something enough, when we feel the solidarity, when we feel the cause. So my, my salvation, my path for hope that I prescribe in this one wild and precious life mm -hmm. is to rather than worry about what you should be doing and is it going to be doing enough and are we going to make it in time and will we save this one wild and precious life in time, I say focus instead on what we love. And to do that, go to nature. 
go to nature, be in nature, and we will save what we love. We love nature. We've got to be reminded of that. So that's something that I sort of try to encourage people to do in my book, and I think that will galvanise. A lot of people have watched um, David Attenborough's latest documentary on Netflix. I think that has galvanised. You know, um, we, it's a it's a documentation of our love of nature and what we're about to, to lose. And then that's an exposure of the grief that we're feeling and the incredible, unfathomable grief that we will feel if we don't mobilise. So they're the kinds of things that I prefer to refer to rather than talk CO2 tonnage and, you know, recycling solutions. All of those things exist. All of that stuff we know. We just have to get the heart, you know, the ticker to go and do it. Mm. And... Um, and my advice is just start where you are and then do everything you can. I love that advice. Um, my final question for you, I could unpack that, but with running out of <laughs> my, my final question for you, this is one of my all-time favourite questions. You've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have put together a highlight film of pretty much everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done over the years and they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want? that film to say and to show about your life? Well, I'd like it to be very large because I'm sure my eyesight will be shot to pieces by then. <laughs> um, I, I would like it to show my wild moments because it, I'm starting to appreciate at this age that that's um, what I'm most proud of is my, um, my ability that has increased over the years to, to, to operate outside the rules. And it has lost me friends and it's lost me money and it's lost me, you know, um, you know, uh, relationships. Or I, I should actually preface it by saying it, it's meant that I've had a very lonely life. Mm -hmm. um, however, that said, I have wonderful humans around me all the time. It's just that, you know, it, it can polarise when you are vocal and things. So, um, and when you get increasingly wild. And um, my, I, I hope that, you know, the next 50-something years of my life will be um, about me being able to encourage other people to find their wildness as well because that's what we are. We are wild entities. We're free. We should be free. And um, we can produce wonderful, beautiful things when we let go of all those rules that we've established over the last couple of hundred years, you know, longer. But over the last couple of hundred years, the rules that have been put in place have got us so stuck. So, yeah, I, I, I hope that that's what it, uh, it showcases. That's, that's where I'd like to head. It's a very good question. Thank you. I love that answer. Uh, my, my ex and now my current girlfriend used to say to me, uh, I'm a free spirit. No one can tame me. And it's hilarious how my ex used to say it. Now my current girlfriend says it and I didn't understand it before. Now I understand it. <laughs> I think it's a very feminine thing. And I think it's got a lot to do with the, with a bit of the feminine rising to use woo woo language. But I've been listening to a bit of what Jane Fonda has been um, saying. She's produced a book about the climate change and about activism. And uh, I've been listening to some of her thinking. She is, you know, veering towards 100 and she's made some decisions in her 80s um, to, to leave a legacy that's truly wild and unique. And it is a female thing. 
we are wild entities. The feminine needs to be to, to express. And I think we're coming into an era where that unbounded fi- uh, thinking is required to solve the problems and to make the world a little bit better, a lot better. I, yeah. feel, like, I feel like that's a, a, a great way to sort of end our conversation. We're definitely going to do this again sometime soon, please. Um, Sarah Wilson, thank you so much for your time, your outspoken nature, your, your wild nature as well, everything that you're doing for society. Um, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for sharing your story on the Storybox podcast. Thank you for your very considered and uh, mindful questioning. I really enjoyed it. I don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.